0: Hello, everyone. I am Jennifer Braverman. And I'm Ellen Selm. Welcome to our podcast, Stories from the Earth,
1: where we explore mankind's relationship and connection with the natural world. If you enjoy our show, we would definitely humbly like to invite you to consider supporting us on our anchor page. There are donation buttons you can click, which if you decide to become a supporting member, uh, just know that those proceeds will go towards funding future projects of ours, including launching an educational curriculum aptly titled The People's Herb School, which is a program designed with utmost affordability and accessibility in mind for um, teaching medicinal plants to our local region, as well as taking our show on the road and doing some traveling to be able to do a few episodes on location at some interesting spots. So in honor of Indigenous Peoples Day coming up on October 11th, we are going to be spending today's episode delving into the book Black Elk Speaks by John
0: G. Neihart. If you are watching this on YouTube, holding up the book, this is the um, complete edition, which I would recommend because it has pictures of his vision, which we'll get to, and also all a bunch of like appendices and like forwards to all the other editions. So, definitely worth getting this guy here. So about the author, the author is of European descent, born into a farming family in Illinois in 1881. He went to college in Nebraska. Being there on the frontier of the Great Plains during the primary years of the westward expansion of territories put him into an incredible position in terms of time and place in history. For a period of time, he lived among Native Americans, first with the Omaha, 1901 to 1907, and later among the Lakota, also called Sioux. Out of his relationship with the Lakota came his single most famous book, which is Black Elk Speaks, 1932. He then became literary editor of the Minneapolis Journal, 1911 to 1920. In 1923, He was appointed professor of poetry at the University of Nebraska. He later became literary editor of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, 1926 to 1938, newspaper director and field representative of the Bureau of Indian Affairs for the U.S. Department of the Interior, 1943 to 1948, and lecturer in English and Poet-in-Residence at the University, Missouri, Columbia, 1949-1965. Through his life, Neihart was repeatedly honored. He received the Poetry Society of America Prize for Best Volume of Verse in 1919 and was named po- Poet Laureate of Nebraska by an act of the legislature, which I found interesting, um, I don't know how it usually is, but... (laughs) Sounds like an interesting way that it's done. (laughs) Quite unusual there. Um, That was in 1921. He was awarded the Gold Scroll Medal of Honor of National Poetry Center, 1936, and the Writers Foundation Award for Poetry, 1964. He was elected to the Nebraska State Hall of Fame in 1974, and a bronze bust of Nyhart. Had already been placed in the rotunda of the Nebraska Capitol by an act of the state legislature <laughs> in 1961. Another act. There we go. I don't think there's been a bust of me erected by a state legislature. <laughs>
1: um,
0: and the Garden Club of Bancroft, Nebraska, acquired the cottage in which he lived and where he did much of his writing as a Museum of Neihart Memorabilia. And there is a special my Heart Memorial Collection at the University of Missouri. And I was thinking when I was reading this, I was like, well, maybe that would be cool to visit one day. I don't know.
1: Yeah, but- you know, it's kind of funny. I, I was doing the research more on him just in preparation for this episode. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like I was in driving distance to that place for 10 years living in Missouri. Oh, and I man. never knew <laughs> never went to visit it but I did pick up one of his first poetry books just to check it out. It was pretty fun. He has a a good, uh, I appreciate his poetry style.
0: I'm not, I'm not one for the, for the poetry. Not, not really. I, I think I'm just too, I don't know, impatient to something, something, but I would be really interested after like hearing like this book, what his poetry is yeah. and is about. So knowing
1: the kind of life that he lived, what that would have inspired.
0: Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Maybe I like it. <laughs> You'll like it.
1: I thought it was a cute story that um, apparently his first book of poetry that he published, which is now in the public domain, uh, it's how he met his wife. She oh. read his. She read his book. in in Europe she was from somewhere in Europe I forget where maybe England but anyway she read his book and started a correspondence with him basically as a fangirl and they corresponded for several months and then she came to America and he met her at the train station and then after that they just got married and lived the rest of you know the rest of their lives she she passed away before him but I just thought that was a a cute story um
0: that is really cute
1: but it is, of course, just is important to introduce the man whom told the story of this particular book that we are exploring, the man whose name is the very title of this book. In nineteen thirty, Nyhart was researching the ghost dance movement, which had occurred, um, sometimes referred to as the Messianic movement by non-natives. It was bringing a number of indigenous tribes together, and he thought it was an it, it would be important to account. Um, the Native Americans' perspective of that movement. So he got permission to go to the Pine Ridge Reservation. Um, For the most part, reservations were not open to visitors at that time. Um, And there he met uh, Nicholas Black Elk, an Oglala Sioux holy man, or medicine man, whom it is said was willing to tell the story of his vision that he had had so that it would be remembered for history for his people. Black Elk is said to have felt that he failed to fully realize his vision in his lifetime, which had been meant to protect his people. Thus, they all eventually ended up on reservations, fleeing to Canada, or sadly, perished. Black Elk was second cousin of the famed warrior Crazy Horse, fought during the Battle of the Little Bighorn and was witness to the Wounded Knee Massacre. Nyhart recounts that Black Elk invited him back for interviews by saying, there is so much to teach you, What I know was given to me for men, and it is true and beautiful. Soon I shall be under the grass, and it will be lost. You were sent to save it, and you must come back so that I can teach it to you. Nyhart writes that Black Elk told him of his visions, including one in which he saw himself as the sixth grandfather, the spiritual representative of the earth and of mankind. Nyhart also states that Black Elk shared some of the Oglala rituals, which he had performed as a healer, and that the two of them developed a close friendship. Neihart's daughter, Hilda Nyhart says that Black Elk adopted her, her sister, and their father as relatives and gave each of them Lakota names.
0: Maybe we'll talk about this later. It's interesting that he chose to tell his story to this person who's not a native above like out of everybody else that you know like yeah. work was about this particular person that he was like hey you are the one
1: apparently there had been some other people that had tried to go and talk to him and he had turned them away so hmm. I'm not entirely sure what he sensed was different necessarily um about John G. I think we have more discussion written in about this later. If it doesn't, then we'll circle back around.
0: So, as with most things in a historical lens, when Caucasian Europeans are involved, there is some controversy. And it is important to make note of. So, Blackheart was a Glala Lakota. The book was written by Nyheart, a non native. While well, the book is lauded by non-Native audiences and has been inspirational to many. There are traditional Lakota people and Native American scholars that do not consider the book to be representative of Lakota beliefs. They have debated the accuracy of the account, which has elements of a collaborative autobiography, spiritual text, and other genres. The Indian university professor Raymond Demalley, who has studied the Lakota by cultural and linguistic resources, published a work titled The Sixth Grandfather in 1985, including the original transcripts of the conversations with Black Elk, plus his own introduction, analysis, and notes. He has questioned whether Neihard's account is accurate and fully represents the views or words of Black Elk. The primary criticism made by DeMalley and similar scholars is that Neihart may have exaggerated or altered some parts of the story to make it more accessible and marketable to the intended white audience of the 1930s, or simply because he did not fully understand the Lakota context. Later 20th century editions of the book by Nebraska University Press have addressed this issue by entitling the book Black Elk Speaks, as so told... Through John G. Neihardt, the complete edition. It has, it has the um, citations in it. At least everything, because I have the
1: 1979 edition that was my parents' book in college, and so I think everything from about then onward started to continually add more notes and transcripts and things to build on the recognition that there was substance behind just what was accounted for in the story itself it's probably in your copy too but in the very back of my copy uh they show an example where um uh there was a story that black elk was recounting and they show the handwritten uh um shorthand
0: that Mm -hmm. nyhart's
1: daughter was handwriting down um and then nyhart took her shorthand and turned it into prose to write the story down. And they so that what they did was they, they showed uh, her handwriting, they showed the way that she had written it, and then they showed the way that Nyhart wrote it before publication, just on a short story example. And there was, at least in that example, there was very little change from one to the other. But if you imagine, you know, if you're taking notes, and you're writing shorthand because you're taking notes, it doesn't necessarily flow or sound conversational or sound poetic. It sounds very, but, 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 you know, like this and then this and then this and then this, and no one would want to necessarily read a book that, that read like that, you know? So it seems like the poetic license that he took was more just trying to make it flow as an actual story, at least as what could be seen from... notes that are provided in those later editions and i guess the one that, that the copy you have has even more added appendices than the one i have so um they've definitely been digging more into it as the decades have
0: gone by it does and unfortunately i wasn't i was unfortunately i was listening to the audio version of this book and i just recently got the text copy and I haven't had time to really dig into the extra bits, which is unfortunate because there, uh, what I did read of some of it was very interesting. They I guess a- they,
1: they don't include extra things like that on audiobook copy. Not this
0: one. I think some of them do. It just depends. There was a letter to Blackout from NyHeart. That was really interesting. I read part of that and so i kind of wish i had i'd been able to um get this a little earlier but i was like oh i had no idea bonus material
1: so (laughs) well um a brief summary of what this book is about that is not an easy thing to say so i'm just going to say what the uh the uh, explanation that's off the back of the book of the copy that i have 1979 university press edition it says his meeting with sue holy man black elk john g neihart once said was the most memorable experience of his life in 1930 while working on the concluding poem of his work titled cycle of the west neihart had gone to the pine ridge reservation to find quote Some old medicine man who may have been active in the Messiah movement and be induced to talk with me about the deeper spiritual significance of the matter. In my Black Elf recognized the one who had been sent to learn what was given to me for men. Uh, And that's in quotes, what was given to me for men. The next summer, in a long series of talks, Black Elk imparted his life story and the story of the Oglala Sioux during the tragic decades of the Custer Battle, Ghost Dance, and Wounded Knee Massacre. Black Elk Speaks was originally published in 1932 and has been venerated by many who have become alarmed at the declining spiritual and material quality of life in the age of computers and Star Wars, while the electronic media purvey fragmented images of tragic schisms Black Elk offers an eloquent and profound vision of the unity of all creation. And that last part of that summary in particular seems rather prescient considering that our technological age has just like been exponentially increasing um, since that summary was even written in 1979. So it's just like, whoa, yeah, it's like the, the sort of the heart of the, the story of Black Elk is just as pertinent now as it was, if, you know, and increasingly more so when we're
0: kind of getting further and further disconnected from nature. And you think about it, and you're like, this book was written in 1932, well, it was published in 1932, but it was written probably a little bit before that. Yeah. And it just... Yeah, it's, it's almost very- 100 years old. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's crazy but it's so relatable. It makes so much sense. It just does. You're like, I get it. Even though, even though a lot of us are not very familiar. Well, it's like connecting to the human element transcends the time. (laughs) The time and the culture, because unfortunately, as white people living in this country, I sadly don't know a lot about Indian culture
1: there's only been so much printed and it's, it's getting better all the time and even including from indigenous authors themselves. But um, there was a, there was a very long period of history where, you know, most of the stuff was going to be through a skewed lens that was very at best, just lip service to the natives. And at worst, just like downright brutally twisting the truth um, and didn't portray them in any way that would be, fair or accurate so that i think that's part of what's so interesting about his work for its time period was that it was so um clear in that he was clearly trying to do his best to get to the heart of the natives perspective of things. you know it wouldn't really be much of a book review if we didn't kind of go a little bit more into the books meat itself. So we're going to do a few quotes here that offer a little bit of glimpse for some of the context of the history of the story. So these are just a few that are pulled out throughout the course of the book, but they, uh, they all kind of are a little bit interrelated in terms of, um, in terms of the lens of history. So, um, the first one is up on the Madison fork, the Wasichus, a term used to designate white people, but having no reference actually to skin color had found much of the yellow metal that they worship, and that makes them crazy. And they wanted to have a road up through our country to a place where the yellow metal was. But my people did not want that road. It would scare the bison and make them go away. And also, it would allow other Wasichus to come like a river. They told us that they wanted to use a little land, as much as a wagon would take between the wheels. But our people knew better. And when you look about you now, you can see what it is that they wanted. Once we were happy in our own country, and we were seldom hungry, for the two leggeds and the four leggeds lived together like relatives, and there was plenty for them and for us. But the Wasichus came, and they made little islands for us, and the other islands for the four leggeds. And always these islands are becoming smaller, for around them surges the gnawing flood of the Wasichu, and it is dirty with
0: lies and greed. So I was wondering if this term for white people is not about skin color. Mm -hmm. What does it reference?
1: It's not Yeah, I don't know. They never they never say. I mean, I guess it maybe it maybe it just references like the other, you know, or the stranger or the newcomer in the land or
0: And then even if it's even if it's negative, I I feel like I would like to that was the the footnote. um, the footnote bothered to make the point that
1: this doesn't have to do with the skin color. So I'm like Well what? they thought that was important enough to put the, a footnote for it. So I just thought that was interesting. And it's like, okay, well then, yeah, that is curious. Like what it, it, it's, it's a word they chose to distinguish. Well, cause it's interesting. Cause there are parts in the book where they mentioned some, um, you know, African-American cavalrymen and they called them black wasichu. Yeah. So that would suggest that wasichu just has something to do with, the other yeah you know regardless of skin color the
0: the invaders as it were okay okay it was it was like it was like just the way it was written it made me like well then what does it mean so it's just like why didn't you say that part maybe they didn't have a good english word to to transliterate it to or something maybe not i love about the mention of the yellow metal just making just people prowling. crazy. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. It's I such a
1: it's that's, that's a really good line to drive home the realization of like where people's priorities
0: were and, and are. Yes, and still are. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The next quote is wherever we went the soldiers came to kill us. It was our own country. It was ours already when the Washichus made the treaty with Red Cloud that said it would be ours as long as the grass should grow and water flow. That was only eight winters before and they were chasing us now because we remembered and they forgot. It's very poignant. Yes. And also, like, it's It seems like there's a a split in the, um, you know, the...
1: The people. Yeah. Like, some of them, some groups and bands were making treaties and trying to make peace, and they saw the best way to do that was to, like, go along with what the Wasichu were saying, and then there were others who were like, no, because they always keep breaking their word, so... They, they, they were divided in, in that sense, even amongst themselves over, you know, especially over time.
0: Yeah, how to deal with these new people.
1: One kind of relates to, to that quote, though it comes later in the text. Or actually, I think it's, it's around the same time. News came to us through the moon of the falling leaves, November, that the Black Hills had been sold to the Wasichu and also all over the country west of the hills the country that we were in then. I learned when I was older that our people did not want to do this. The Wasichus went to some of the chiefs alone and got them to put their marks on the treaty. Maybe some of them did this when they were crazy from drinking the Minne Wakan, I'm assuming I'm saying that right, but I don't know. It's referring to holy water, AKA whiskey that the Wasichus had given them. I have heard this, I do not know, but only crazy or very foolish men would sell their mother earth. Sometimes I think it might have been better if we had all stayed together and made them kill us all. So there's some of his um, despondency there, you know, and, and just wishing, you know, better, better to have the people stay united, even if it meant the end, um, you know, versus seeing everything cut up and divided up. You know, I think that was, you know, obviously a very heavy impact there.
0: Yeah. When I read stuff like this, I just feel like what a missed opportunity it was for both peoples. Yeah. To, um, actually collaborate and- uh, Like that
1: saying, uh, appealing to the better angels Mm -hmm. like yeah like just you know what could have happened if everybody approached it as what can we learn from each other and give to each other and you know i think that that's entirely possible that some of the tribes would have been open to it if, if not all of them even um you know just out of sheer curiosity of who these new people were. And, you know, that colonial imperialist mindset is, you know, by that point, so ingrained, I mean, thousands of years ingrained, brought over from Europe, this conquesting way of life, definitely missed opportunity. Like you said, in terms of how if they had approached it differently, instead of just like taking everything and claiming it theirs and whatnot
0: definitely i think that the natives not that they i mean they they had war they fought they did have you know conflict among the tribes they weren't kumaya perfect yeah right right but but they like they're still human yes but i feel like they didn't have this this mindset they had a very different mindset than the uh you know colonial um conqueror Yeah, Uh, take all, crush, 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 uh, get the yellow (laughs) metal mindset. It's just sad if we had come over with a different mindset. What, what this country could have been? Uh, I think it would have been something really, really great. So, So the next quote is, "I can remember when." dole knife a cheyenne ally whose winter encampment had been attacked by colonel mackenzie in november 1876 came with what was left of his starving and freezing people they had nothing and some of them had died on the way many little babies died we could give them clothing but of food we could not give them much for we were eating our own ponies when they died And after a while, they left us and started for the soldier's town in the white, on the right, on the white river to surrender to the Washichu's. And so we were all alone there in that country that was ours and had been stolen from us.
1: So in these book review episodes, we always go into why this book, why did, why did we pick? this book. You know, it's known well in some circles and maybe overall really obscure, I don't know. Um, But I I think this book would have made it into our review episode sooner or later because it fits the theme of talking about and exploring ways mankind is connected to nature and the earth or or even, you know, this book very much explores that as well as what it looks like in direct opposition when man is not being as connected in the particular context of this book, it could be said and seem to be as coming from a particularly spiritually influenced angle. But then I'd like to posit the question, where does spirituality and science of reality meet if not, but in nature, the human drive to reconcile ourselves within it. It seems that indigenous people, the world over, or anyone embracing a more animistic purview are more adept at understanding and balance along this line. And that a book like Black Elk speaks, if even a fraction of it is true to Black Elk's own word and vision, it thus becomes an insightful gift or a gentle guide to appeal to that connection of all life. So that's why I say this book.
0: (laughs) And for me, this is the first time I have heard about this book. Ellen told me about this book, and I was like, "Oh my gosh, are you serious?" I'm interested in um, hearing, you know, Black Elk's story and hearing a um, you know Indigenous person talk with their own words about the experience during the time that he lived, and just in in general, I was just I thought that was really cool, and I feel that many Indigenous indigenous people have a way of looking at the world that we have lost mm. um, and i feel like we lost it as uh, you know european descendants a long a long time ago i feel like it's just if we had it it was a long time ago and so maybe by learning about indigenous people we can sort of try to relearn some of what we have lost and this will help us change the way that we've been living. And at the very least, uh, we definitely need to find a less destructive way to live on this planet so that we can survive. So Blackout, I felt like it's a man who's essentially been through the end of a world or the mm. end, I felt like it was the end of his world. Yeah. And I think there's a lot we can learn from him in this time of change. Going time, through the end of one era and and moving on to the next. And that sort of, he
1: he lived in a liminal time
0: like that. And Um, it seems like we are also in that time and very much like maybe entering the beginning of sort of that- Something else. (laughs) That time, because we are living one way, but yet we need to change and live a different way. And everybody sort of doesn't know what that's gonna look like. Well, uh, it would be worth in that sense to share some
1: more quotes from the book for the historical context, but also just for digging further into the the viewpoint from Black Elk's vantage, you know, and him trying to learn and trying to understand what was happening to his world, you know. So, yeah,
0: I think uh, we had a couple of good quotes there. Yeah, this is um, when he... Decided to join Buffalo Bill's Wild West traveling show, which I thought was really cool. And I did act did not know before I was reading the book that like he did that. Oh yeah, because it even
1: allowed him to travel uh, to Europe um, doing the performances, which you know not many people like him would have done back then and he did it you know an effort to try to learn more yeah i I think yeah go ahead the the quote goes into that better
0: yeah they told us the show would go across the big water to strange lands and i thought i ought to go because i might learn some secret of the washichu that would help my people somehow maybe if i can see the great world of the washichu i could learn how to bring the sacred hoop together and make the tree bloom again at the center of it I looked back on the past and recalled my people's old ways, but they were not living that way anymore. They were traveling the black road, everybody for himself and with little rules of his own. As in my vision, I was in despair. And I even thought that if the Wasichus had a better way, then maybe my people should learn that way. I now know that this was foolish, but I was young and in despair. So I think his idea was good. Like, I think I think he acknowledged that it's like, he,
1: he was trying to find something to reconcile what was going on, and he just took a stab at it. Yeah. Um, this is referencing that same time period, particularly a performance that they were doing in Madison Square Garden in 1886, where they were parked before
0: heading to Europe. Before you start, I just want to say, like, it it makes sense. Learn about, I don't want to say your enemy, but you're, well,
1: I mean, yes, (laughs) but also, you know, from a more diplomatic angle, I guess you could say like being a holy man, being a medicine man, you are seeking maybe peacemaking. If you can, you're seeking what's going to help your people. So trying to bridge that divide, you know? I could see why that would have seemed, you know, like something that he had to attempt doing, even if in his hindsight, he thought, yeah, well, that didn't go anywhere. (laughs) So he says, we stayed there and made many, many shows for the Wasichus all that winter. I liked the part of the show that we made, but not the part that the Wasichus made. After a while, I got used to being there, but I was like a man who had never had a vision. I felt dead and my people seemed lost and I thought I might never find them again. I did not see anything to help my people. I could see that the Wasichus did not care for each other the way our people did before the nation's hoop was broken. They would take everything from each other if they could. And so there were some who had more of everything than they could use while crowds of people had nothing at all and maybe were starving. They had forgotten that the earth was their mother. This could not be better than the old
0: ways of my people. I think the word I was looking for was perspective. Because he's talking about the contrast. He learned the Mm -hmm. the contrast. I think maybe he didn't fully understand until he went. And was like surrounded by it.
1: Yeah. And then he could really see. Yeah. Yes. And what did he see? Well, he saw... (laughs) What
0: is still going on today? Thank you very much today. So this one is referencing all of his people slowly surrendering to being put into onto reservation. All our people were now settling down in square grey houses scattered here and there across this hungry land, and around them Washichus had drawn a line to keep them in. The nation's hoop was broken and there was no center any longer for the flowering tree. The people were in despair. They seemed heavy and dark that they could not be made to see anymore. So pretty, pretty sad quote. you know. Yeah, but walking. that's another one,
1: like you said, for the perspective. You could just imagine how many of the uh, westward expansion settlers were potentially telling themselves like, oh, well, I mean, you know, I mean, we left them some land, I mean, you know, like, geez, like, they can stay over there, you know, like, I mean, like, uh, people having to make uh, explanations for why they were doing what they were doing. But then, you know, from the perspective of the indigenous people, it was like, no, this is out and out robbery, you know, what, how do you, how do you draw a line and say, this is mine, and this is yours on one connected planet? (laughs)
0: I think that your average settler, I mean, I think some people were a, a sympathetic and interested in forming a relationship with the natives. Like I heard that here in the mountains, that for a while, the people who came to the mountains and, You mean here in North Carolina? Yeah, yeah. Here in North Carolina, people who came here in North Carolina from initially like all the scotch irish and that came and settled in this area they got along with the natives with the tribes that were here and they did a lot of trading and all that stuff and and then i i don't know what happened but and, and well I, it's always again the, the power the money
1: you know the you're going to extract resources, you know, what's valuable, Uh, the metal in the land, the oil in the land, the coal in the land, the land of the land, land. you know. Yeah.
0: But I think that, and then there were people that were were regular people who were average Joe people who were hostile to the natives just right out out of of the gate. You know, and fear of
1: the other something different something that didn't fit their religious worldview
0: or skin color worldview and so forth but as but as what the government was doing i feel like that was different and the government had its own ideas about what it wanted to do mm-hmm. with the indigenous people so i i, I I wonder, <clears throat> I, I feel like they did not have the um, the best interests of the natives at heart when they were putting them on the, the reservations and stuff like that. I mean, <laughs> it's just, yeah, dude, I would be hard-pressed to say they had any interests <laughs>
1: yeah. of, of theirs in mind other than just put it over there so we don't have to deal with them. Right. Yeah.
0: At the least. Mm -hmm. I believe
1: so that makes this part kind of tough because it's like okay well what did you like best about this book this this challenging book um I like how it was written down very simply to the point that it reads as though you are sitting there hearing the oral tale being accounted directly to you, and I appreciate the honesty and the depth of the exchange shared, or at least as it seems to have been shared. It is to be assumed and accepted um, that the work is largely the tale as told by Black Elk, so regardless of any influence Nihart may or may not have had, in taking poetic license, it does seem to be no small matter that a Native American holy man would have seen fit to record for posterity his vision and his beliefs, and not just for his own sake and fame, because it didn't didn't bring him that, um, But but specifically with the hope that it would matter for his people or somehow help the world of humanity. The fact that it was written down and published at a time in history when it was still relatively recent, um, having recently occurred, I think that's valuable too because history and memory tend to fade with time. So no one would be able to write something like this today and it be so close to the source material because so much time has passed since those events actually occurred that there would be no more eyewitnesses alive and so forth. And I realized that some people may wonder why it wasn't written and published firsthand by say Black Elk himself or another member of his tribe or something of that sort. Like that's a question that I could see people in our modern time being like, oh yeah, well, why, you know, why wasn't it, you know, fully a hundred percent, you know, done, um, native controlled. But uh, I would venture a guess that, uh, given the culture of the time period that, There were probably few natives who either spoke English clearly, or knew how to write it clearly, or had any avenue to pursue for seeking publishing representation, let alone distribution. And so for that reason, Black Elk's partnership with Nyhart was advantageous to the longevity of the preservation of his story. And that's kind of what we were talking about earlier. It, it, it had a, it's been able to have a broader impact on the world, I think, because of that. Um, Nyhart's place as the penman kind of put him falling under that trope that we can now deem as the white savior role in a way. But again, I, given the time period, I don't think that that trope, as such, yet existed. It was more of a, a matter of circumstance, and I think that it's fortunate that somebody bothered to try to write all that down for the preservation of that history for sure
0: yeah if he saved anything he saved helped save this story black elk obviously thought it was important and nighart thought it was important as well and i felt like they mutually thought it was important just from maybe the tone of the book and um, some of the notes, yeah. The, yeah, some of the notes and things like that. So and, what did you like best about the book in that sense? I thought the book does a good job at telling you who Black Elk is and the world in which he lives. Some, like I said earlier, something that I don't know too much about. I mean, I, I know... I don't know, you learn a little bit in, in school and I've watched Dances with Wolves, the movie, but it's not... <laughs> That's, yeah. not a, that's not a whole lot there, let me tell you. So, no. it's embarrassingly small. And I love history um, a lot. I just, I love it. I love hearing about the past. I'm really interested. Growing up, I was thinking, maybe I'll be an archaeologist, you know, or something like that. And um, totally didn't get to be an ethnobotanist, but, and I love, like, we had this class in college. Anthropology, everybody hated it. I loved it. So it's cool because you get caught up in the world and this man. Um, and he has such deep feelings for his people and for the world. Yeah. So much emotion is like portrayed in the book. Yeah. To see how he looks at the world and you get taken through it as he grows up and he tries to help his people through this difficult time. And the book feels very honest. And it has a straightforward quality. It's easy to emphasize with with Black Elk. Again, that that human connection
1: component carried through, and that's probably the most that that either Black Elk or Nihart could have hoped for. You know, with the intention of the book, I would
0: think. To contrast that last question, though, what did you like least about the book? So the book is a bit hard to read and. And by read, I mean listen, because I actually didn't read it. I I did listen to it, but it's sort of um, it's almost like one long run-on sentence, and um, it's 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 a little dense in places. So perhaps I I think several readings are beneficial to to sort of get all the little bits in there. I think there's a lot of but when you get used to how it's written, it gets easier. And um, and I've never read a book that's written like this, and so it takes a bit to find your footing.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because I had first read it. Um, I actually thought about it and before we started recording and did the math. So it was between when I was like 11 and 12, and I pulled it off my parents' bookcase and decided I was going to read it. Um, and I never anything in the least of it's how it was written it seemed to sort of download into my head pretty easily and and then having just reread it for this episode now you know a few decades later I did notice that about the book that it is very much like the oral story is coming through and I and I almost think that you know as a kid because you are reading and hearing more tales and fables and stuff like that, like your, your brain just kind of naturally thinks that way more. Um, and certainly, you know, I was young enough that I didn't have a lot of literary comparison in mind, you know, um, I don't feel like I s- struggled with it so much now just in just that I was able to notice that difference that it's like, wow, yeah, this is written differently than you know it's not written in the way a traditional biography is written it's not written in a way that a typical history canon would be written it is written as if you were sitting there around the fire hearing the story told i think helps with its timelessness in a way and certainly gives it a a a very visual quality to the text but i could see why that is gonna make it unusual (laughs) For a lot of people in terms of it's not a typical way to have a book written that you're that you're reading. In that case, what did I like least about the book? I don't really have a bone to pick with the book per se, but the overall story, the subject matter, the feeling that one is left with when you have completed the reading is... Basically, lamentation and it's sort of an empty hollow in the heart for what once was. And I think anyone with an ounce of empathy can't help but feel that, and not just in a white guilt sense for the injustices that were inflicted upon the indigenous people and still are, you know, the world over, but also in mourning the loss of these rich lives and cultures that did live more simply on the earth, especially in the wake of all the continued destruction that we inflict on the natural world today, as you were talking about with regards to climate change and everything like that. It's like, you know, everybody wants to say, Oh, the good old days. And, and, you know, it's sort of just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Your rose colored glasses, you're glossing it over what was really good. But, um, I think, you know, Blackout could legitimately say wistfully, oh the good old days, he was right. Hopefully we can all learn more of what made those times for him good and emulate that more in in our growing future, you know, that 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 we need to do for the sake of
0: the planet, you know. Yeah, it's definitely looking at the past and taking some of it and bringing it forward into the future or looking at what was
1: good (laughs) What, what can be salvaged from the wreckage
0: yeah what will help us take care of the planet better and the people better and the as he says uh, you know the animals better and well there uh there's a little glimpse of an
1: answer to that in the quotes we chose to share as some of our favorite quotes from the book what were uh some of the highlights
0: for you jennifer i really i really like this one you have noticed that everything an indian does is in a circle That is because the power of the world always works in circles and everything tries to be round. In the old days, when we were a strong and happy people, all our power came to us from the sacred hoop of the nation. And so long as the hoop was unbroken, the people flourished. The flowering tree was the living center of the hoop. The circle of the four quarters nourished it. The East gave peace and light. The South gave warmth, the West gave rain, the North with its cold and mighty wind gave strength and endurance. This knowledge came to us from the outer world in our religion. Everything the power of the world does is done in a circle. The sky is round and I have heard the earth is round like a ball and so are all the stars. The wind in its greatest power whirls. Birds make their nests in circles for theirs is the same religion as ours. The sun comes forth and goes down again in a circle. The moon does the same. Both are round. Even the seasons form a great circle and they're changing and always coming back again to where they were. The life of a man is a circle from childhood to childhood. And so it is in everything where power moves. Our teepees were round like the nest of birds and these were always set in a circle the nation's hoop a nest of many nests where the great spirit meant for us to hatch our children so there's so many things that i i love in this quote it's got so much symbolism in here yeah
1: that's a really really big i think nice description of his his broader viewpoint you know of of their beliefs and and how much that was intricately tied into
0: the planet in the natural world, he's making a connection between people and animals here, the birds and and them share a religion they the birds make nests, they make nests, and even putting
1: it in a cosmic context, you know, talking about the stars and the moon and all of that it's like. You know taking it from being right here in front of your face to being like oh my gosh no it encompasses all of this you know and that's such a a
0: vast perspective to have
1: humbling and awe-inspiring
0: uh, everything is a circle from the smallest to the biggest and i like he's like and i've heard that the earth is round and then you picked a couple other quotes that
1: are a little less sh- shorter and less um weighty but still kind of <laughs> tie in I think to yeah. to some of that worldview thinking.
0: Yeah so, um, so this next one is it is from understanding that power comes and the power in the ceremony is in understanding that it meant, what it meant for nothing can live well except in a manner that is suited in the way in which the sacred power of the world lives and moves. And so he was talking about I believe this is a part of the book where, like, he has he has these visions. He has a great vision. In the, and then in order to, I guess, you be able to use the power of the vision, he has to, they sort of have to do a ceremony. Yeah, they kind of, like, act it out
1: in, in real time what he saw.
0: So that's what this is referencing. But I... I really like the part about nothing can live well except in the manner that is suited in the way in which the sacred power of the world lives and moves. So it's like you need to live, in order to live well, you need to live as the world lives. Or Yeah. Well, live. and what's interesting
1: to me too is that the choice there in the text, they capitalized the word way. So it says... Nothing can live well except in a manner that is suited to the way capital, which is interesting because it just makes me kind of think of a lot of uh, Eastern, you know, philosophies where like the Tao, you know, the Tao is a way. And that's also, you know, referring to that sort of ebb and flow of the natural world of life in that sense of, you know, universal truths in a way people figuring it out on one side of the world and people figuring it out on another side of the world and almost verbalizing it similarly you know that's pretty cool
0: in the book they're talking about you know like how the wasichus live in square houses and um they're always putting the indians into square houses and they're not very happy about that i was thinking that maybe in europe there was a actually an, an archaeological a reason an evolutionary reason why the houses were actually square and not round i i don't know i was thinking well i mean
1: about-
0: that's that's culture to culture to culture i mean
1: the okay. uh, the the cherokee the here cherokee here built longhouses and because they were splitting logs and logs are just big straight heavy things it's a lot easier to construct them into angled dwellings and I mean they used logs for teepees but because they erect them upwards for you know leaning in as poles once they wrapped the hide around that it and ended up being a circle so they had reason for doing what they were doing and so it was alien to them to see the square dwellings you know I mean there's round cob mud huts in the English moors you know just as much you know so like it was probably a lot to do with what was situationally appropriate for how they lived. Uh, Lakota Sioux were nomadic people. And Mm -hmm. so the teepees could fold down and be taken with them. And you're not going to be able to do that like with a longhouse or a cabin. Yeah. It had more to do with um, what materials are available and what you're building with at the time and what your lifestyle dictates, the kind of shelter you need indigenous people on like the Siberian steppe who live in yurts, the yurts happen to be round, but again, because they're mostly built utilizing hides and things, it's just kind of what, and they are nomadic as well. It's just a structural type that ended up being appropriate for the lifestyle. But that aside,
0: (laughs) I think that he has
1: an eloquent um, reasoning behind, you know, why they believed there was meaning to how they were, you know, living that way so i know when i read it when i was little i was like oh my god i this is all wrong i am one day gonna have a round house and i still see no reason why one day i shouldn't have a round house because his reasoning makes perfect sense to me i just have yet to achieve that goal <laughs> i i agree
0: i think round houses are are really cool there's some there's something about them i i also it's kind I, of harmonious I, it does it does Your last
1: chosen quote there, I think, is a bit of an excerpt from one of his explanations of his vision, right? Or acting out the vision.
0: It is following the good red road to the center of the village where the sacred hoop stood, and we elk men follow, dancing around them. So they're dancing around these women. The men are dancing around the women. For the power of the man encircles and protects the power of the woman. So they're The reason I put this in there is because it talks about men have power, but also women have power.
1: Yeah, like they had honorary roles for both, and both were equally important. And so they didn't necessarily look at it as a way of
0: like a hierarchy
1: necessarily in that sense.
0: Yeah, they had, yeah, that certain women did things, men did things, but right, like you said.
1: And then uh, I'll continue with the um, vision bits. The couple quotes that I picked out as some favorites were also directly um, excerpts from his vision description. He says, I looked ahead and saw the mountains there with forests on them. In front of the mountains flashed all colors upward toward the heavens. And then I was standing on the highest mountain of them all. And round about beneath me was the hoop of the world. Black Elk said that the mountains he stood on in his vision was Harnay Peak in the Black Hills, but anywhere is the center of the world, he said. That was a footnote. And while I stood there, I saw more than I could tell, and I understood more than I saw. For I was seeing in a sacred manner the shape of all things in spirit, and the shape of all shapes, as they must live together as one being. And as I saw that the sacred hoop of my people was one of the many hoops that made one circle— wide as daylight and starlight. And in the center grew one mighty flowering tree to shelter all of the children of one mother and one father. And I saw that it was holy. So he was nine when he had this his main great vision. And I just find it interesting because he goes on to say that he was hesitant and nervous to talk about it and share it among his people at first because he assumed that they wouldn't listen to him and, and they wouldn't believe him because of how young he was. And I think we sometimes get this sort of romanticized idea about indigenous spirituality concepts that would have us assume that the entire people was just accustomed to dreams and visions and poetic musings about everything being sacred left and right. And, and, and it, and it is infused into the culture, of course, but the statement of him saying he was nervous and assuming the doubt of others because of his age just is kind of a, a very human glimpse into sort of that, you know, old dilemma of the young versus the old and being able to be taken seriously. So that was a kind of just a really interesting little human element I thought about that. You know, he had this huge grand, amazing vision, which later on, you know, other people, when he did finally tell it to his people, they did feel it was grand and important, but Mm -hmm. from the perspective of a nine-year-old, it was just like, oh, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this, (laughs) you know?
0: (laughs) But I thought it was interesting that he felt like it was important, like, instead of just, oh, that was a weird dream I had, oh, you know? Yeah, like,
1: he was very acutely aware that Oh, this was something.
0: <laughs> I mean, it it is possible that if he, he told it when he was that young, his yeah, somebody would understand, might understand. Mm-hmm. Or he was just he was young. <laughs>
1: yeah, as a kid, you don't know. You know, you're like, what am I supposed to do with this? You know, I'd be scared too. If- this uh, other quote is from well, a vision he had much later in life, whenever he was kind of in the thick of actually all the ghost dance things going on, where. Uh, people were trying to find a way to get their old ways back, and he had a vision um, that they referred to as the dog vision. And in order to perform it, to bring the power kind of into waking life, such as it is, it was determined that they would need to perform it as what they call a Heoka ceremony, if I'm saying that right. Seems yeah, how it's that's spelled. How it
0: was- Pronounced yeah. in the book. And a
1: Heoka ceremony is done as a sacred performance of a few chosen people who are acting as clowns in order to cheer the spirits of the rest of the people, but their costuming and their antics are all infused with sacred meaning and intention. So that sets the stage for this quote. He says When the ceremony was over, everyone felt a great deal better, for it had been a day of fun. They were better able now to see the greenness of the world and the wideness of the sacred day and the colors of the earth and set these into their minds. The six grandfathers, the wise, holy ancestor spirits representing the four directions, the earth and the sky, have placed in the world many things, all of which should be happy. Every little thing is sent for something. Every little thing is sent for something, and in that thing there should be happiness and the power to make happy. Like the grasses showing their tender faces to each other, thus we should do. For this was the wish of the grandfathers of the world, and I think therein is some of, uh, you know, his hopefulness for reconciliation. You know, kind of coming out
0: in that, in that explanation. And it's it's a, it's really great. It's like even the grass, this this tiny, tiny, very numerous, common thing that we see all the time is is there for a reason and that reason's a good one.
1: What was your biggest takeaway in in getting through this book?
0: So um, so my biggest takeaway was that after everything that was done to Black Elk's people, he had um, enough hope to not only form a relationship with a white man but to trust him to write down, his vision and his story, this very important vision. And I think it's amazing and ex- and inspiring that this connection can happen, especially, you know, what happened between their two people, because, um, you know, they were able to bridge a very like large gap of pain and, you know, general awfulness <laughs> that had happened. I mean, a bunch of went down. <laughs> yeah. It's a, very, it's a very bloody book. It, it, it is a
1: very bloody book. You have to know the truth, or you're never going to be able to
0: set it right. It's just told very matter-of-factly, so it's it's mm-hmm. not like told for effect. Yeah, but it is. But it is extremely bloody. So Black Hawk had a lot of hope in Nightheart, and then it seems like by extension, he had and all by extension, all of us uh reading this book. So not only did Black Calc have hope and I heard he had helped hope in all the future people who would read the book and that makes me smile, you know, and that's that's a and this idea of hope that I take, you know, forward from this book. And I um I want to have that much hope in humanity. Black Calc was so sad about how his people ended up and and that he not quite fulfill his vision and however he was still able to look past all that pain into a possible future that was different for everyone and i think that's really cool yeah I i would i would second your
1: takeaway and then just add to it in saying that um it definitely strongly helped develop in me at a young age a broader sense of north american history european impacts therein Um, As well as fostering more respect and reverence for the earth and fellow living things, which I think does tend to be more inherent and almost intuitive as an understanding in children in a way, but we tend to lose it or we're grow and educated away from it in this dominant culture that we have now. But reading something like this book, when I did, helped set a foundation for not losing that understanding you know, and I and I hope that if nothing else, something like that fact would have helped Black Elk feel at peace knowing his story is capable of helping people of all ages turn their eyes and their hearts back towards that
0: relationship with the earth. So who would you recommend this book for?
1: Well, I mean the most obvious is that it would be a good read for anybody interested in American history and particularly the time period where in the Great Plains indigenous people overlapped with the westward expansion of European settlers. Um, so, you know, history buffs, there you go. But I would think it has been considered and should still be considered a valuable read for anybody who wishes to not just simply learn history factoids or let alone something through a colonial imperialist lens because so many things written are um, but rather someone who wants to read something where they seek to connect with the humanity that's in the history and seeking various perspectives not to mention it being a philosophical launching point for contemplation in our modern technocratic age um where some of us might feel a sense of loss or disconnection on account of it and wonder what alternative ways of living there could be or have ever been, being able to relate to that, to being able to explore that a little bit more.
0: I think the word that I was trying to find earlier is like a blueprint, you know, just finding these blueprints to even create a new blueprint for us. Yeah like a template template yes exactly when we're looking for ways to different ways to live a different way to live we don't have to make it up from scratch there's other people we can look to in history that have already yeah that can give us glimpses of it and yeah it could be a good book just to start looking and thinking about that well, um, hard-pressed
1: to find a quote to kind of end it all on, but this one kind of stood out as just a perspective of uh, the life cycle of humans in general, and, and it kind of invites people to meditate on it further and, and pull more meaning out of it. Um, he said... You want to know why we always go from left to right like that? And he was referring to motions that they do in their ceremonies. I can tell you something of the reason, but not all. Think of this. Is not the source, is not the south, the source of life? And does not the flowering stick come from there? And does not man advance from there towards the setting sun of his life? and then does he not approach the colder north where the white hairs are, and then does he not arrive, if he lives, at the source of light and understanding in the east? Then does he not return to where he began, to his second childhood, there to give back his life to all life and his flushed the earth once it came? The more you think about this, the more meaning you will see in it." Um he's got overlapping imagery there of their sacred directions that they always address in their ceremonies, but kind of what those directions are attributed to as far as like the wheel of time and the life cycle
0: and so forth. But yeah, each each direction has a color and a season and stuff like that. So. Mm-hmm. The medicine wheel. The medicine wheel. The medicine wheel. It's in a circle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it's, it's 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 good. It's 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 a it's a quote that's even if you're not familiar with what he's talking about, you can understand it, and it makes sense. It's it's like he's he's almost te- he's just teaching in this book. Mm-hmm. He's sort of teaching howling and teaching as well, like explaining certain things in ways that like, I mean, maybe, I mean, I guess he knows who he's talking to. He's probably aware that most people who read this book are going to be non natives so. Yeah, that's
1: why I liked how he kind of ends that by saying, um, you know, if you think more about it, then, you'll see more meaning in it. So it's like he's inviting you to be like, no, you really got to think about what this is saying here. It's, it's, it's not just some sort of um, symbolic metaphor. I mean, it it is, but symbolic metaphor hat with a grounding
0: in real substance. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Inviting you to, to ponder thing, this thing in a, that you haven't thought about before maybe. So we want to thank everyone for listening. Thank you for joining us as for our discussion on Black Elk Speaks. Heady Elk material, speaks. but you made it through. Yes, and if you are like, I don't feel like I'm up for reading, there is an Audible book that you can get and listen to. We're not all like Ellen who can at nine years old. How <laughs> old were you, nine? I think I was, uh, when I did, a, when I did the math, I was
1: somewhere between 10 and 12. Okay. It was one of those years, mid nineties sometime.
0: We're not all pulling, uh, books off our parents' bookshelves at, at 10 and 12. Um, <laughs> yeah, I
1: mean, that book was from my parents' college days. It just, you know. I, I the cover caught my eye and I just you know dove right in.
0: It's not the first book you pulled off your parents' shelf <laughs> either. This wasn't "Women Who Run with the Wolves." Oh yeah, yeah. Also that one. a book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We did. If you're interested, I did read that with- one
1: later though. Like I remember it okay. being around the house, but I read it later. I wished I'd read it sooner. Now knowing what it was, but this is one that I did fortunately find young and. Uh, has meant a lot to me
0: ever since. So, yeah, I think I think that's so cool that you, you were, I could just imagine you. Just I think that's so cool. All right, so if you are interested in hearing us talk some more about other stuff, more stuff, other books, <laughs> "Women Who Run with the Wolves," we have an episode on that. Um, lots of herbalists interviews and other um you can follow us on Anchor. you can listen to us on anchor and spotify we are still not yet on apple podcast but i'm we're working on it so stay tuned for that we have a youtube channel where you can watch our smiling faces and we have a facebook group and we're on instagram so please You're on Facebook. You want to join our Facebook group. And
1: sometimes we put call outs on there for topic suggestions or even invites for people to be on the show. So that's a good reason to to stay in
0: touch through that platform. You can go to our anchor page. If you would like to support this podcast, just go to the uh, there's a support button. You can donate for one dollar or five dollars or ten dollars a month. We will also be having a Patreon it soon, so we'll have a Patreon as well. And that just helps support the podcast, also supports our um, project, the People's Herb School, and that money will go to making uh, tuition extremely low, because we are interested in having herbal medicine be accessible as well as other projects. So um, any support we do appreciate. Thank you so much. Yeah,
1: join us um, for our next episode uh, to tie into this one and bring the context into our present time period and maybe hopefully lighten that mood. We will be speaking with environmental science major and Lakota serenity activist and direct descendant of Black Elk, Luke Black Elk, as well as his wife, Linda Black Elk, who is a renowned indigenous ethnobotanist, well known for teaching and preserving traditional Native American food and medicine ways, and for her organizational involvement during the Dakota Access Pipeline protests back in 2016. So that will be uh, an interesting dovetail to this um, foray into this book review that we did today, kind of put a modern lens to it all.
0: We're very excited about that. I think it's gonna be super cool. We are just like, "Oh my gosh," because it just came together really well, and with the timing and it and everything and, um. Yeah, so that that should be, that should be great. All right, guys. So, stay Holy tuned God. and
1: join us next time.
0: <laughs> yes, next time. We will. We will. We will talk at you. Okay, bye. Bye.